0: Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary, House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm one of your hosts, Nikki, from House of Faith and Freedom, and you can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Today, we have the privilege of spending time with our guest, Sybil, and we are just so thankful to have her. We're also thankful to have you as listeners Uh, Welcome to the table with us, and we would just like to have a conversation with the Lord before we start. So Lord Jesus, we just love you and thank you for making us. Thank you so much for Sybil and her heart. Thank you for her mind. Thank you for the wisdom that she brings. And Lord, for our listeners who are entering into this time, I just ask for space for them that you would clear their minds and hearts to um, really be able to receive what you want for them to hear. And Lord, you tell us that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. We trust you with that. And we just lay this time before you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nikki.
1: My name is Hannah. I'm the founder of House of Faith and Freedom and one of your co-hosts. And as Nikki mentioned, we are joined today by Sybil Cummin, who is a licensed professional counselor and proved clinical supervisor who specializes in victims and survivors of domestic violence and narcissistic abuse, including the youngest witnesses. Sybil runs a small group therapy practice in Colorado and is the creator of Rising Beyond Power and Control, which is a membership community for women survivors of abusive relationships. She
2: also has the Rising Beyond podcast. If you have no self-worth, you can't set boundaries, really, because you're not worth the boundary. You're not worth that. And so as I see self-worth start to improve or they set like a tiny boundary, their self-worth goes up and then they can set another smaller boundary and their self-worth goes up and they can set another small boundary. And it's self-advocacy, especially because it's your sense of self, like that's stolen when you're in an abusive relationship. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Sybil. Yeah, thank you all for having me and helping me share my passion with people I might not be able to connect with otherwise. Absolutely.
1: So many times when we speak to someone who's working in the field of domestic violence, it's often due to lived experience. Like you find a lot of survivors in this field. But you have a little bit more of a unique story in that your passion for this field came sort of unexpectedly and vicariously. Can you tell us a little bit about your background as a therapist and what brought you to begin Rising Beyond Power and Control?
2: Yeah, my story is different because I do not have lived experience with um, childhood abuse or domestic violence or narcissistic abuse. I went into the field of mental health and and therapy just wanting to work with kids. That was it. I wanted to work with kids. I've worked with kids right since um, kind of right in college, and I just love it. I love being with them. They're so authentic, so honest, and it's way more fun playing than doing other things. Um, And so in all the different arenas or environments I found myself working in with children, there was this dynamic within families that I couldn't initially put my finger on. And I didn't understand where it was coming from and why children were presenting the ways in which they were presenting. And I worked in a hospital setting, I worked at an agency um, where we worked mostly with child protection cases, and then in private practice, and I consistently saw this dynamic, and the dynamic was domestic violence. And unfortunately, in my graduate program and the majority of graduate programs, um, we're not trained in anything around domestic violence. I was in couples and family that was my track that i i did to get my master's degree and we had maybe 30 minutes in my graduate program in a class and it was what i took from it is if there's domestic violence don't do couples work moving on like that's what i knew like that was it and so the more i became involved with these families and really trying to figure out what was going on and i kind of saw the manipulation and I saw, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse, consistently saw financial abuse left and right. It was then that I was like, oh my, this, like, this is why my kids are presenting this way. This is what's going on within these families. This is why, right, that my work with the child, they're not going to have any relief and their symptoms because they're going to a system where this is present. And this was either their parents were together or they were no longer together. It didn't matter. This dynamic of abuse was still present. I reached out to my supervisors at the different places I worked, and none of them had any more information or education on it than I did. So I learned from my clients, which if you were trained as a therapist in the early 2000s, that's like a gasp, like a, no, you don't learn like you, you're supposed to know when your client comes in how to help them. Well, guess what? I didn't. So um, I learned from my clients and reached out and, you know, met advocates and learned from them and read books and and did my own kind of self-directed learning. It really only became a passion where I started to teach other professionals and eventually came up with the rising beyond community, rising beyond power and control, because as a child therapist, I'm a play therapist by training, I would get asked to testify in court for these family court cases. And um, a lot of therapists don't do that and they're not comfortable doing that. I don't like love it, but if it's going to be in my kids' best interests that I work with, I will do it. And half the time it was like I was, you know, the peanuts teacher, like from, you know, Charlie Brown talking and nobody was listening. It didn't matter what I said. The outcome was still putting my kids at risk. Didn't matter what I said. And that was mind boggling. Like I didn't understand it. And so if I don't understand something, it just doesn't sit well with me, especially when it's around child safety. Like what on earth? And so I just jumped in, right, like headfirst, cannonballed into the world of post-separation abuse and our family court system. And seeing, right, experiencing it from this side of it, where it felt like I, as this professional, had no control, even though, you know, I'm supposed to be listened to. And then seeing my kids have, you know, the opposite of any sort of control and seeing what they were experiencing, I just could not just sit still. I couldn't sit by and watch this happen. And so I have a lot of privilege in my life and in my position. And so as I started learning, I just started becoming a squeaky wheel and talking about it. And a lot of people didn't like that. Um, and you know, well, (laughs) I'm not for everybody and that's okay. But really that passion came from wanting kids to be okay and helping them thrive in their world and seeing that the family court system was putting families and protective parents in a place where they would not thrive in their world and that there are options to do things differently and nobody was doing it. So that is how I came to be and why I decided to start this community for women. I do in my practice work with male survivors and victims too. There are male victims out there. The community is specifically for women just based on kind of the rates and statistics and audience and things like that. But really what I saw when I ran support groups in my practice, which are therapy based, the healing was quicker when they had a group of other women who understood what they experienced and who believed them, right? Just being believed, not having to defend yourself over and over that Allowed for a quicker healing process. And then, you know, in in the therapy world, you're based, right, like have to do things based on insurance a lot of times. And there's like specific ways therapy groups go. They're, you know, eight to 12 weeks long, and you do it, and then it's all done. And that just wasn't a fit. That wasn't a fit for this particular population because unfortunately if you have left an abusive partner and you share children, you are in this for the long haul. And so 10 weeks is helpful and not enough. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I switched to a different model. And then kind of the model I went with um, allows people from outside of the state of Colorado to work with me because based on licensing laws for my, my therapy practice, I can only work with people in Colorado this other kind of model allows me to work with people wherever. That is how it came to be.
1: That's incredible. I was reminded of this quote from Basil van der Kolk uh, in his book, Body Keeps the Score, where he says, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. And when we think about something like abuse, it fundamentally breaks your safe connections. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And when we think about healing from abuse, it makes sense that community is one of the driving aspects of being able to move forward. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I think that's so powerful. It's part of why we see these these types of communities, these types of air quotes support groups. And I feel like they're moving away from this 6 to 12 week model that they maybe follow in like the last 30, 40 years in the domestic violence world and really into more of this like long-term sustainable form of community because we recognize that need continues on. Recovery is not something that is instantaneous. It's not something that's fast. And the support and the safe people and the safe connections, that community aspect, that has to move forward with the person.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. And before we get too much farther, I am sitting here and I must say how thankful I am at your desire to understand. I heard you say that when I don't understand something, I need to jump right in and understand it the very best that I can. And I think that's also a platform for those who want to walk with survivors is you've got to have a desire to understand them in their hearts so they're not in a position of constantly explaining. Just I just have to say off the bat, thank you. I, re- I really appreciate that on behalf of survivors. Yeah. And this willingness to be curious,
2: mm-hmm. that's something that seems Netflix worthy. Like so many of my cases feel Netflix worthy, right? The Things you can't believe because in our level of humanity, it makes zero sense. This wouldn't happen. So we don't understand it. And we're not going to be able to embody it the same way, right? How someone can harm someone else, but just that willingness and curiosity to hear and and believe that it is true.
1: <clears throat> we'll touch more on this a little bit later as well. I apologize. Also, I keep clearing my throat. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. But something that You said in there, this idea of embracing your curiosity and also allowing yourself to recognize that great evil is possible. We have the capacity to do large amounts of harm. And it can be hard for us to step outside of ourselves to imagine that happening, especially if it's a situation where we maybe know both people. And this is something we run into in faith communities an awful lot, is there's this hesitancy to believe that something so egregious could be happening in a couple that looks so nice on the outside. And that's hard. And I think part of what we have to understand as bystanders, as uh, maybe those outside of the experience of abuse, is that we should be erring on the side of protection. In this situation, it should be like safety, 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 safety. So you should always be airing on the side of the person with less power. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So before we dive too much further into this conversation, you focus in on um, something that's called narcissistic abuse. I think the term narcissistic abuse can get sort of tossed around casually. So can you get into a little bit like what is this form of abuse how is it different from the mental diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder and what does it look like?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it is um, almost a controversial term within the advocacy world. And I also initially was like, no, no, we're not diagnosing people. Like I get to diagnose people because I have the training to diagnose people and all of that. But what I have really seen um, when we're talking about narcissistic abuse. The term refers to attributes of the abuser. And so the abuser may not fit full diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, but they have traits of that. So narcissistic personality disorder is a disorder in the diagnostic and statistical manual. It's a cluster B personality disorder, which really holds to struggles with, um, relationships. So all of those, their disorders cause havoc within relationship. But narcissistic personality disorder is really this grandiose sense of self-worth, self-importance, really high levels of entitlement, that they truly believe that they are superior to others. Um, They very often lack empathy. And in order to gain status, gain higher job positions, just being seen in a specific light, um, they will harm others to do so. And they believe that that is in their right. And so they actually don't often believe that the things they are doing are wrong. It is a part of their belief system. It's a part of kind of who they are and how they have come to work in their world And so when we're talking about narcissistic abuse, I specialize in it within um, intimate partners, but narcissistic abuse can be from a parent to a child, can be from a boss to a coworker, can be in different arenas in that way. Um, I specialize in it within romantic relationships. And the reason the term has become kind of the cool kids term, I think is because what it actually is which is domestic violence people cannot subscribe to because of all the misconceptions about domestic violence so if you hear the term domestic violence you're thinking it is a male partner they are you know low education um, blue-collar workers they have a bunch of kids they're young and there is physical harm done in the relationship. And so that's what people's idea of what is domestic violence. And so if that's not what their relationship looks like, they're not going to take on that label. Even though, and I say this, so not all domestic violence is narcissistic abuse because not all perpetrators of domestic violence have narcissistic, most of them have narcissistic traits. But some of them are, they just don't know how to interact with people. they um, need that power and control, and they lose their stuff sometimes. There are cases where it's situational violence, not very not as many, but there are times when that is. But all narcissistic abuse is domestic violence when it's done in within an intimate partner relationship. And so that is hard to stomach. And when I started to really work within this arena and reach survivors in a way that was kind of just outside of my practice where people were coming to see me specific for this, or they were bringing their kids specific to this, um, that I wasn't reaching people that needed help because they didn't subscribe to that language. And so they had never been physically harmed in their relationship. But there was a constant emotional abuse, constant gaslighting, their children were being used as pawns, um, extreme financial abuse, and all of the other abuses that are domestic violence. And yet they were never going to reach out for help for domestic violence, but they would reach out for help for narcissistic abuse. And so that is when kind of I realized like it's language and I'm going to meet people where they're at rather than be like, no, it's domestic violence, because in order to get funding, which a lot of, right, like, I'm not knocking that, but a lot of nonprofits for domestic violence, they actually need the language domestic violence in order to get specific funding. Um, But that's not what I do. (laughs) I want to help people individually. And so I'm going to meet them where they're at. And if that language sits well with them, then that's what I'm going to use too. Wow. Absolutely. I think
1: Language is powerful. And like you said, Sybil, I think there's a real barrier to people labeling what they're experiencing as domestic violence, mm-hmm. like, because it does carry such a heavy connotation that's been there for so many years. And something that's really interesting when we're speaking specifically around narcissistic abuse, because it individuals who perpetrate narcissistic abuse often don't fit into that demographic that we tend to associate with domestic violence. So they're often incredibly smart, well-educated, high-income earners. They can be very charming, very likable. It's super hard to identify. Like Yes. It's not something you can necessarily just pick up from meeting that person. Can you talk a little bit to uh, the challenges both for Outsiders, so counselors, family members, friends that may be around a couple where there's narcissistic abuse happening, as well as the victim who's actually living inside it, what some of those barriers are to identifying that abuse for what it is outside of maybe the language or association they they might have with the idea of domestic violence.
2: Yeah, I would say probably when it is narcissistic abuse and there are those traits of the abuser, probably one of the... Um, strong, I guess, indicators or characteristics is that they are chameleons and they are brilliant at putting on whatever mask is needed for that situation. And so if they need to be the caring, doting parent, boom, they can turn it on, caring, doting parent. If they need to show the perfect family, they can show the perfect family. If they need to be um, this specific type of coworker. They can turn it on. And that is just how they've learned to work in their world is to wear many masks. But the mask is why we don't see it. And the mask also kind of dispels the myth that domestic violence is an anger management problem because they are really good at not losing control in any area. So if, you know, you thought it was anger management related, um, they would be losing their stuff left and right, but it really is only directed at one, maybe two people where they really need to have power and control over. And so you'll really notice this. Um, there was a specific case in the news last year where you can see this, where police will be called, police come, and... The victim looks like a crazy person and the abusive partner, they could have been raging two minutes before. And the minute there's a knock on the door, switch, and they are wonderful. They're calm. They're able to answer all the questions. They seem caring. And so there's not right they they don't see it because that mask is so amazingly put on and when people start to see like every now and then the mask will slide off or someone can see just a little bit behind the mask and that's when you can kind of see it they can only hold the mask on for so long pretty often and so if you're really looking you can see it <laughs> Um, That's also a really dangerous time for their target um, when the mask slips in public. And so that's, you know, it's something for professionals to really just be aware of, of if the mask finally slips and you see it, your person maybe that you're working with is more at risk in that moment.
0: Hmm. Which is all the more to believe a survivor because they are the ones living there 24 hours a day And they've seen this, not only the switch and the different masks, but they've experienced when the mask mm, once in a while comes off and they're able to see realities of the behaviors behind the masks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The idea of chameleoning is really interesting. And I think it, is a good example of why specifically this form of emotional abuse is so confusing because you are dealing with someone who's constantly able to shift their persona Mm -hmm. and it does make you feel insane. Like that behavior in itself in an element is almost gaslighting because they can be so angry and so, cruel maybe in one setting and then so instantaneously can shift into something else where it begins to feel like everyone else sees this great person. Maybe
2: I'm just insane, you know? Yeah. It brings up the like, well, it must be me because Mm -hmm. it's only happening to me. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And for kids, this really adds in that additional element because they're also witnessing it. They're -hmm. they're perceptive. They're more perceptive than we give them credit for, even if they're quite young. And they're around this individual all the time. Also, they see the shifts that are happening. And especially for a child, trying to understand and consolidate that image of their parent can be so challenging. So can you share a little bit about the impact that intimate partner violence or narcissistic abuse can have on children and how a narcissistic abuser can use those kids? And then how do we support children who have parents that are in or have left an abusive relationship?
2: Yeah, what people don't understand, and even though the research is out there, people don't want to see it. I think because it's that cognitive dissonance of like, wow, our world is this bad. So people don't look at it, but the research shows that um, children witnessing domestic violence and this narcissistic abuse, they have smaller experiences and rates of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as veterans coming home from war. And so this is what our children are experiencing. Um, and so they're, only place of safety like what we're you know taught of is safety isn't safe and they're not sure when it's going to be safe and when it's not going to be safe and usually their one safe person is being harmed and so if something happens to that their one safe secure person which is usually the protective parent then that causes more fear than pretty much anything else because that's who meets their needs. So they have a lot of symptomology. Very often their trauma response will be like the fawning response. And so they will become people pleasers specifically to their abusive parent because they have learned that that keeps them safer. This keeps me safe if I do this. And so they do that. The problem with that is, is for people who aren't looking or don't know what's going on, is it seems like that child is more well-behaved for that parent and that they love that parent because they're stroking their ego. So that is, that fawning trauma response is misconstrued for, um, you know, behaving really well for that parent and that relationship is good. And so in a family court system or within a therapy you know, if the child's seeing a therapist or there's family therapy involved or whatever, it's like, well, the child is acting a fool at mom's house, but with me, they're so well behaved. And so that causes a lot of concerns. So they're going to look at the victim parent as there is something wrong here because the child is a disaster at your home. When in reality, the the child, it's almost like kids who, um, I have kids um, one of mine does this like crazy, my youngest, they go to school and they just behave beautifully at school and they get in your car when you pick them up and they like terror, right? It's because they have been holding their emotions in, they've been trying to act a specific way so people like them, they don't feel as safe at school as they are with you. So very often the safe parent is going to get the brunt of the bad behaviors because it's safer.
1: Yeah, that safety allows or opens the doors for them to be vulnerable and to expose that underbelly of insecurity, of stress, of trauma. And Yeah. yeah, that's definitely not something that I think the court systems for sure don't always recognize. And that on the surface level can be really confusing for people who are trying to help, especially when you layer on top of that the fact that the narcissistic abuser is really playing this to their credit. Right. Like absolutely they're really willing to like lay it on and just be like, they just love being at my house. They just love being with me. Look how happy they are when they're with me. Look how
2: calm they are when they're with me. Mm-hmm. And taking on that air of, a lot of times we will see this, like, especially within um, faith-based communities, they will take on this of, and I am so worried about my child. I'm so worried about, you know, the other parent. Something must be going on there because the child's misbehaving there and they're having issues there. And so then they can gather support. You know, in the domestic violence world, we call them flying monkeys, which is not a lovely term. It's kind of a gross term, but it's from the Wizard of Oz. The Wicked Witch of the West has her flying creepy monkeys do her bidding. And so then this abusive person, they're now abusing their victim through all of these people in their faith-based community.
1: For sure. And the crazy thing about it is I don't think the flying monkeys realize that's what they are right? Like they have no idea. Yeah. They think they're on the side of righteousness. Like they are like, we are supporting this good single dad, you know, like who Mm -hmm. really wants to try hard. And I think something that mm, this is, is an interesting element when we look at abusive situations and it almost plays back to you, uh, talking about the reality that a, a victim might often look out of control or like they can't contain their emotions and an abuser will look very polished and very clean and very like they have it all together. Mm -hmm. And that happens in faith communities too, because a victim is just oftentimes by the time they leave a relationship, I mean, they are just barely hanging on by their fingernails and they don't have the capacity, the emotional, mental capacity to try to go out and garner support. You know, they may have disclosed to one or two people. They may have battled with the fact that those people may not have believed them or may have tried to remain neutral or whatever it is. And then the abusive partner has all sorts of capacity to go out and really do campaigning around their cause. And they're also willing to play it dirty. And mm-hmm. gonna be, <laughs> it's going to be hard to go up against that with someone who's willing to taint the truth or willing to... Um, constantly talk themselves up or or whatever if if you're not willing
2: to go down to that same level yeah and it goes against like the majority of victims there is kind of a specific personality type of a victim so you don't have to have childhood trauma you don't have to come from a family where there's domestic violence granted those are risk factors too but there's some personality traits that lend themselves well to being A target for an abusive person. So if you are really agreeable and you're willing to look at your own stuff, you're willing to work on yourself, you give the benefit of the doubt, you have really high levels of empathy and compassion. And then you have a sense of loyalty and sticking through. Those are all amazing traits, right? If you like say that, you know, those are like my best top personality traits, it's like, oh my gosh, like, you're an amazing person. Yes, you are. And those are also used against you throughout this process. And so I think that, you know, that is important to know too, is that there are other things that go along this. And so I think for people that are listening, who are just really wanting to support and walk alongside, um, really, you know, the idea of being trauma-informed As opposed to pathologizing, like something is wrong with this person, the question is what has happened in their world to make them look like a crazy person, (laughs) right? It's not that they are crazy. It's like what experiences and circumstances have gone on for them to present this way? And looking at that different direction because you will look at things completely differently and you will have compassion and curiosity and even just the question to a survivor of like, you know, your personality has completely changed, not in this shaming way of like what's going on, like what happened. It's like something must have happened in your world for that to happen.
0: And I'm curious about why that is. Wow, that is so, so accurate and so powerful at the same time. You named a list of characteristics that often survivors fall under. And I'm just going to repeat them because they are incredible, wonderful pieces of character in many ways. They're agreeable. They often give the benefit of the doubt. They're loyal Um, They're willing to look at their own stuff. So they're, they're often very humble people. When you consider survivors, what would you, in your experience, wish that you could add to that list for them in terms of walking this wild road of abuse? Yeah, I think
2: the piece that usually is, it's almost like that, like, when a perpetrator is like, oh, I've got her, like, mm-hmm. is the willingness to put other people's needs ahead of your own all the time. And women are kind of taught that that's what we're supposed to do in general. Um, so that ability to have enough sense of self to not do that one of the conversation about faith communities, because
1: that is literally what you are taught in Christianity is like, put others before yourself, sacrifice yourself, right? Like your life should be a living sacrifice. You should give up everything all the time to help other people. And I think especially in the like nineties into the early two thousands, there was this really large movement through Christianity that was sort of like this idea of, um, Sacrifice and lay everything down and like go and go and go and go and go go until there's nothing left of you. And that's like a holy pursuit. And I've had some really interesting conversations with my mom about this actually in the last few weeks about how that mentality, although there are some, you know, lovely aspects of that, um, is also dangerous. And it's dangerous for reasons exactly like this because it ignores boundaries. And Mm -hmm. when we ignore boundaries, both our internal boundaries around how much we actually have to give around what our capacities are, it leads to burnout. And then you can't give any (laughs) more. Like you can't sustainably give over a long time. You give a lot at the beginning and then can't give anything else because you're falling apart. And so it's like, go for the long haul, learn how to give sustainably. But then there's also these boundaries with other human beings. And so how do we begin teaching what it looks like to have a strong sense of self and to have a strong understanding of yes you can sacrifice and yes other people also need to be held accountable for not taking advantage of you how do you advise your clients around boundaries
2: yeah it it is hard because so many of my clients really feel mean like the like gosh i just feel really mean doing that and so it is you know setting boundaries in these little increments to where it feels comfortable. But I always talk about boundaries is that it's like indicative of your level of self-worth. And so if you have no self-worth, you can't set boundaries, really, because you're not worth the boundary. You're not worth that. And so as I see self-worth start to improve, or they set like a tiny boundary their self-worth goes up, and then they can set another smaller boundary, and their self-worth goes up, and they can set another small boundary. And over time, they gain self-worth through that, and it's self-advocacy. And so I think a lot of the work I do, um, especially because it's your sense of self, like that's stolen when you're in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of work with your value system, and what is important to you, and are you living towards your values and so if self-sacrifice is one of your highest values that would be something that we would you know in therapy really question like what does that look like like what does self-sacrifice look like because you know I have this idea of like yes within like a couplehood or a partnerhood there's this idea that you make each other a better person right that's the goal is like being together with this person, you are then a better person, and then they are then a better person. And so, very often, that's a way that we look is when we're together, my partner is a better person because I overfunction and I will do the thing and I will promote them and I'll like hold them up. But me being with my partner, I am not a better person because I am not living. By my values and so there's this it's called cognitive dissonance when your behaviors or your you have two opposing values and so like I would never let someone talk to me that way I stay in the relationship and so you're torn in that realm so it's like how can we get out of cognitive dissonance live within your value system and you're going to behave in ways that Fit with your values and so very often that's kind of a way that we start that work especially if something like self-sacrifice is a strong value it's like well let's look at and a lot of times you have to go outside of them because they're not there yet where they're not worth it enough yet but their kids are usually worth it enough and Mm -hmm. so what are you teaching your daughters what are you teaching your your boys what are you teaching them by self-sacrificing in this way Mm -hmm. and so very often that is kind of a path the path of least resistance because until they have enough self-worth built up then it's like a an argument you will not win (laughs) so um you know go the path of least least resistance like what is going to resonate with them in that moment it's like we talked about before meeting them where they're at and still seeing some change I mean,
1: literally at the start of this conversation, we talked about the rates of PTSD in kids who witness abuse between their parent figures. And it's like that self-sacrifice is all being geared towards a singular person at the cost of your ability to sacrifice or love anyone else in your life. It is all to the one person. And is it worth the cost of your kids living inside of that household? Like there are all of these other things that come into it. And I think it's convenient for the abuser to have you not think about any of those other things. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they will keep
1: you so on your toes, so wrapped up in their emotions and their responses and their desires that you can't think about anything else. And part of that healing process, part of those that boundary process is like, I need to gain enough self-worth, enough self-reflection, enough ability to see outside of this moment, this relationship that I can see the, the cost to everything else that this is causing. Like, what are these ripple effects coming out of
0: this relationship? I have a question. What is the kind of language that you hear from kids when you're sitting with them, where you go, "Oh, I'm seeing that this is this specific style of domestic abuse." And then, what do you wish for them to know? If you could say to kids, you know, what would you want them to to know in this?
2: Yeah, so very rarely do kids say anything. (laughs) So using experiential therapies, so play therapy, which is what I am trained in, art therapy, music therapy, the therapies that are not just about talking is usually the best way. And for anyone dealing with family court and post-separation abuse, it is the only way. I'm going to say that because there is always this idea that the child will be coached in therapy by like one parent and you can't coach a child to play a specific way. You're not going to know what's in the office to play with. What's the therapist going to ask them to draw? And do I see coaching sometimes? I sure do. And the child will come in and they'll say, my dad touched me inappropriately. And they're like five or six. And I'm like, gosh, what is that like? They don't know because it didn't happen, (laughs) right? And so then I'll ask more questions, and they have no idea, or they'll even say like, "My dad said I need to talk to you about." And the more I go into it, there is nothing there, right? They the child this is the child isn't stressed out about whatever it is, isn't it? Doesn't matter. So with that, what I see a lot with my kids is there will be anxiety. Usually, it looks more anxious with girls and boys. um, And there is this idea of separation anxiety. So they're scared of going to school. So they might have school refusal. So they're coming to see me because of school refusal. But when we're playing things out and we're looking underneath, they're actually scared of leaving their mom at home because they want to protect their mom. So themes like that, that come up, it's like, okay, what's going on that mom needs protecting? Like something might happen to my mom while I'm gone and then my safety is gone. So that's some of the things that we look at. Um, The other themes that I see a lot of is power and control. So you might have that kid who is so bossy and they have the hardest time with peers. They just have such a hard time with peers because they always want to have power and control in the play with their friends. And it's because they don't have it anywhere else and they need it. And then they see that it works because that's what one of their parents uses is power and control. And so you might see those, those issues with peers where they really don't interact with peers well because they're really bossy. So that's the language that other people will use about them is like, oh, that child is so bossy. And so it's it's really like looking at behavior versus what they're going to say. And then as a safe person for the child, so if you're not within their primary family or whatever, it is asking those questions as opposed to like, you must not feel safe. Like, like you're safe. You're safe at school. You're safe, which that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story we could go off of there, but um, changing the language to something feels safe unsafe because very often it's not about the child it's about their wanting to protect the parent so just shifting the language to like this more general tell me about things rather than the you because it may not be the you but yeah those are some of the the themes that I see um and yeah just like overall anxiety and seeing them with their different parents like all kids misbehave right Kids are learning. That's what they do, right? It's how they learn. And so if there is the perfect child with one parent and they are perfect, even the like, thank you, daddy. Oh, I love you. Uh, you know, and they're, you're like, oh, my, she's just so perfect and sweet. And then you see them with the other parent. Maybe they're not acting horribly, but it's something just to note um, because perfect isn't real ever right if you're a perfectionist it's not real in families perfect's never real it's not real so if you see perfect i question
0: always Hmm. and what do you wish kids would know who are caught in the fawn response in all of this what do you wish for them to know
2: this is a sad one because they will likely still have contact with that parent based on how our family court system works. And so we don't try and take away that response because it keeps them safe. Mm -hmm. But I want them to know that with safe people, you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And so just giving them that awareness and most kids become aware, like they can feel the difference between unconditional love And love with strings attached. They can feel it. They feel a difference. Um, It takes time. Right? Because they're little people. And they're developing. And they have to learn. And as they cognitively grow. They'll start to learn that. But yeah. that We're not going to take that skill away. Because it will keep them safe. Uh, But I wish that they knew. like In a safe place. In a safe relationship. You don't have to do that. I think that's
1: a thing they'll continue to learn as they age. We, we all come out of our experiences with some form of trauma response. And so how do we then move forward in healthy ways without defaulting always to that trauma response? Mm-hmm. Like we develop those as protective factors. That's why trauma responses literally exist, right? Whether that's freezing, whether that's fawning, whether that's flight, like those things exist to keep you safe. And so it's knowing when that job is completed to some degree? And then how do you not make that your default way of living?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's its whole own other That's topic. a whole um, long podcast about how to um, basically teach your amygdala, which is like your lizard brain, that sometimes it's safe to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole process because very often – um, those who have experienced any form of uh, relational trauma, so child abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, their nervous systems never feel like it's safe to be safe. And a lot of people know that ACEs assessment is the Adverse Childhood Events Scale. Well, kind of the newer research and kind of where I like to land is actually PACES, which is protective and adversive events scale, childhood event scale, because Really looking at the protective factors is so important in, in how someone is going to experience trauma and how they have long term effects. And so, when communities and faith based communities are protective and they add this layer of protection and resilience, um, and they have this non judgmental space and allow the ugly, like they allow the ugly to be there. And they believe them, just that ability to believe and to also see it from that trauma-informed perspective of what has happened rather than what is wrong with you and what we need to do to fix it, right? It's like what has happened because just being a witness to someone's story is healing in and of itself without trying to fix or make better or any of that. And I think to be really aware of the dynamics of if you're seeing one partner or an ex partner present as just brilliant and the other partner looks a hot mess, hmm. there is a huge power dynamic. And very often it is seen as the one that looks brilliant is the savior of, and the one that's a hot mess needs saving while that is somewhat true that the hot mess needs a little saving and they need some TLC, um, it is often due to the one that looks really brilliant. And so if there's a huge disparity in presentation, that is a red flag from the outside.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's so counterintuitive, right? It's just like at the beginning when we were talking about the court system and kids and mm-hmm how the kid may be fawning a lot more when they're with the abusive parent, And then when they're somewhere safe, all of that mess comes out. And when Mm -hmm. we're looking at the reality of abusive individuals, like in a couple, the person who has it all together should potentially be concerning for you. Mm -hmm. And the person who's falling apart is falling apart either because they're just way outside their window of tolerance and it's been incredibly narrowed by trauma or because hopefully, you're a safe place. Your church should be a kind of safe place where someone can bring their mess, can bring their questions, can bring their trauma, can bring all of that ugly. And they should be met there with the kind of patience you would meet your own kid, you know, not with this like, judgment not with the kind of response that makes them feel like oh i need to put on my glossy exterior because i'm headed to church it should be that i can come in this mess and know i'm going to meet with people who are going to love me through it who are going to be that community to support me through it i just think sadly that's not
2: what happens a lot of the time No, it's like i can come as i am Mm -hmm. is the this idea Mm -hmm. of a faith-based community is i will be accepted as i am But that's not how a lot of people experience it. And if you've been in an abusive relationship, especially with someone who is narcissistic, the presentation of family and that everything is perfect Mm -hmm. is really huge, huge, Mm -hmm. huge, huge. And so if all of a sudden, you know, they are perfect, they are perfect, they are perfect. And then once one caregiver is a hot mess, that's something to be aware of because that actually benefits the abuser. If, like, oh, well, we got separated and look right. at how much of a mess she is. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. When we were together, look how perfect we were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then it's like, again, the focus is like, there's something wrong with this person.
1: Right. There's a real like narrative shift there. And mm-hmm. I mean part of the hope of of what we do with this podcast of what House of Faith and Freedom is seeking to do through educating church leadership is how do we begin to view these dynamics in a different way because when you do think of it in just sort of the the common sense way, right? You want to believe that narrative because yes. it matches up with the outside, right? And so to be able to look at it and say something is concerning here And the narrative of this one partner who seems very polished, who's now subtly making their less polished partner look even worse, yeah, that's concerning. That should be taking something in my brain to go, huh, that's not quite right. Like, how do we move ourselves in that direction? And I think that's so challenging is to Mm -hmm. internally check yourself when you're experiencing or witnessing uh, these dynamics going on in a relationship and to say, huh. Is everything in this as it seems? Or is it something that needs to be dived into a little deeper?
2: Yeah. And what that brought up for me, and I actually do not know if this, I I hope this is true for faith leaders, is that they have a place to consult with safe people, meaning people can disagree and that's okay. And then they can get things answered. So it's almost similar to like I am a licensed clinician and I supervise and I do all these things and I'm still learning and I still have cases that are hard and I'm still, you know, we'll sit with somebody and be like, I don't know what the heck's going on here. And so I have safe people that I go to where I can be vulnerable and be like, I don't know, like I need help with this case.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so I would hope that they have somewhere to go like that.
1: I don't think that's something actually that a lot of faith leaders do have. I wish they did, And I think my encouragement would be to anyone who's listening who's a faith leader would be find that person, both in a faith context, but also someone who is specifically trained around abuse and who can help walk you through the process of supporting someone in their their spiritual journey as they heal know that you don't have to do it alone. And in fact, you shouldn't do it alone. Like abuse is so complex and so challenging. There are other people you should and, and can be referring to and also to receive guidance because you may be able to offer something unique on the spiritual side of that, as far as that guidance, that counseling, that support, but do it in a way that's complementary to uh evidence-based therapy to things that are already set up to help individuals going through this complex circumstance. That humble stature of being willing to ask questions, be curious, seek support, continue to learn, that will carry you so much further than just thinking that you have all of the answers or feeling like, oh gosh, I should have all of the answers, so I'm just going to fake it till I make it. Don't do
2: that. Yeah, and that authenticity is so
0: important
2: because and i always tell when i'm training clinicians is we don't want to take on like we don't want to replicate the power and control dynamic Mm -hmm. of the abuser and i could see that even stronger with a faith leader because there is a sense of authority Mm -hmm. there and so to anyone in that position the goal is not to take on that role of having power and control over this person It is to be authentic with this person because that is safety. And over time, survivors have the best BS meter out of anyone I know. They can tell authenticity like this. And if you have (laughs) any fake to you, they're out. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna trust you at all. So if you don't know, it's okay to not know and Mm -hmm. to get knowledge, get support, And I actually feel like you should start from the place of expecting that you don't know.
1: And this is how how therapy has moved through the last 20 years, right? Like when you said in the early 2000s, if you said I was learning from my clients, that would be a horrifying statement. But that's not how therapy today is. Today, it's like you should learn from your clients. They're the experts of their lives in a lot of ways. And that's the thing with survivors is they're the expert of their situation and their experience. Learn from them. Listen to them. And then ultimately... You need to move past the savior complex because you cannot save them, right? You can support them as they regain their voice, as they regain their ability to make choices and have autonomy and discover what's safe and best for them. And you can offer choices and support in that process, but you cannot live their life for them. And like you said, you really want to avoid that temptation to just become the person that makes all their choices, become the person in control and unnervingly, I think, especially when someone's in crisis, they may actually originally come to you asking for that. Like, yes, it is easier for them to move from one person telling them what to do to another person telling them what to do. Yeah. Right. Continue to encourage them to think through and learn and develop that voice again, develop that self-worth, that self-identity, those boundaries. Like those are all things that you can help by loving and encouraging someone to take ownership of their life again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Absolutely. The only time I take that really directive role is if there is a really high risk of lethality. So if I'm Mm -hmm. concerned that that person will not make it to my office for our next session, then I will take a different level of directiveness. Other than that, none of it, and still it's not my choice. Yep. Yep. The immediate safety concern, that supersedes things. But other than that, none of it is my choice. And it is, you know, autonomy is the greatest gift that we can give them. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so we love to leave our listeners with some suggestions for additional resources. Outside of the Rising Beyond Power and Control community, What are some resources that you would maybe recommend for a listener who may be experiencing abuse currently or who is maybe walking through that healing process post-separation?
2: Yeah, I think one of the best things that you can do is kind of self-education is really helpful if you need to do it within support of a therapist as well, um, because sometimes that can be really triggering to read a lot of things and you can go down so many rabbit holes that you don't, you don't want to go down because it's hard to get back. Um, but if you have any actual significant safety concerns, domesticshelters.org is an amazing organization. And it is like the resource hub, an online resource hub. So if you are anywhere in the United States and you need a resource, that's a place to start because they have so many resources. Um, Specific to post-separation abuse, I would say, and there's a lot of different people you can listen to. Literally, if you Google search post-separation abuse support, a lot will come up, um, each with their own caveat of kind of what they believe and what they're gonna help with. One that I have had really good experiences with is One Mom's Battle. It is clearly specific to women. And the caveat is, if you are a part of their Facebook group, it can be really overwhelming because it is so active. And so, if you're not ready to hear all of the post separation abuse stories, just don't read Facebook group all the time. Like, just check in every once in a while. Um, but um, on the One Mom's Bottle uh, like website, they have great resources as well, and they have a Facebook group that is fairly well moderated. So there's someone that's in there pretty consistently making sure that um, there's not a whole lot of trolls and that people are treating each other pretty well. Um, Shannon Thomas, she has written Healing from Hidden Abuse. She's a really good resource. But really, if you are dealing with post-separation abuse, the things that you need to focus on is how do I communicate with my ex-partner if I share children with them? How am I communicating? And finding ways to do that well, because not only is it going to, you know, if you can figure out how to regulate yourself, you will have some control over the flow of things. But it is also one of the greatest ways to refute the false narratives that are going to be shared about you in court. So you are going to present in a way that goes against what they are saying about you. And you're gonna be consistent, 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 consistent. So any type of communication training you can do through that. I very often use the Biff model of communication. Um, you can search that. I have some pretty big uh, ideological differences with the creator of that, which is Bill Eddy. But that part of his stuff is really good. And then the other piece is documentation, which uh, One Mom's Battle has some stuff on documentation for family court. Um, but the two things you're going to get really good at is how to communicate and how to document. So those are kind of the the takeaways if you're dealing with post-separation abuse.
1: For sure. And I think uh, one of the phrases that's used pretty often when we're talking about post-separation abuse for communication is like gray rock or speckled rock. Try to be bland mm-hmm. and don't yep. react, like moderate your reactions, because that is exactly what the abusive partner wants to get out of you. They want to rile you up. They want to make you emotionally involved. They want to make you seem unreliable. Yes. Right. And so it's that thing of like, just be as plain spoken, as on topic, as precise yep. as possible. And don't let yourself feed
2: into the reactionary. Yep. So the Biff model is brief, informative, friendly, and firm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and preferably written.
2: Yes. Right? Co-parenting apps use a co-parenting messenger app. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of good ones, and they all have their pros and cons. So you know, do your research. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Sybil, for sharing some of your knowledge with us. It's been incredibly informative and interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm just so thankful for, once again, coming back around to your desire to understand. And when you don't, you're going to push the boundaries in the right ways to, to understand. And I can't thank you enough on behalf of so many kids who are caught in this and, um, yeah.
1: I will link in the show notes all of those different resources that she just mentioned, as well as the link to the Rising Beyond community. Thank you for being with us.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org.